is, is the key, the key component of what we've been going through here in the book of Exodus. And it's all about the Passover. All about the Passover. And really, Exodus 11, Exodus 12, and Exodus 13 really all go together. And once again, if we had time, it would be great to do this in one study. We don't have time. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, but I want to definitely get into this. This is the key thing. And we're going to talk about why it's the key thing here in just a little bit. But as we get started, let's pray. Heavenly Father, good to be here tonight. Thank you for that time of worship. And I just want to pray for everybody that's here tonight. I'm sure they've had long days. I pray that tonight is just a time to be blessed and refreshed in you and that we would just learn of who you are and what the Passover means and represents to us. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Here's our key passage. For indeed Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us, 1 Corinthians 5, 7. That is this key passage here. We've been talking about the different plagues. You've been with us here for the last few weeks. We know the purpose of these plagues. The purpose of these plagues are to show Egypt God's power. In fact, God says, I'm using these plagues to judge Egypt and to judge their gods. So once the plagues are over, there would be no question to the world who God is and what he has done and his power and what it represents. You've heard me make many references to this before. They talked about these plagues for hundreds of years after the plagues happened. The Philistines were afraid of Israel because they knew of the God of Israel and what he had did to the Egyptians. That's why these plagues are so vital and so important. What's happening tonight, though, is we get to the final plague, the death of the firstborn. We really start to see a picture of who Jesus Christ is and what this means for us and what this represents. We left off last week with the plague of darkness, and we ended in verse 29. So Moses said, you have spoken well, I will never see your face again, after Pharaoh had basically kicked him out. We talked about how the plague of darkness really also shows a spiritual darkness. Egypt was under the spiritual darkness about seeing who God was. Now, some Egyptians had come to know who God was. These last few plagues that we did, when we got into this idea of the plague of locusts and the plague of hail, there was a forewarning where God said, I'm going to do these things tomorrow. And some of the Egyptians responded to this. In fact, as we get here in the next few weeks, we're going to see that some of the Egyptians actually leave. They actually leave with the Israelites. That's how much they were impacted by what God was doing, that some of the Egyptians actually came out of Egypt. And what a beautiful picture that is, Egypt representing the world, and you and I coming out of the world into a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a really beautiful picture, but we'll get into that all in a little bit. So, Exodus chapter 11, verse 1. And the Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask from his neighbor and every woman, from his neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. I always found that kind of interesting. Here you are, getting ready to go. Your God has plagued these people for months, possibly. And as you get ready to go, you're going to go up to your masters, if you will, as slaves, and say, can we have some articles of silver and articles of gold? Verse 3, And the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man, Moses, was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants, in the sight of the people. Basically, this money is back pay, if you will. And this money, they don't get to keep. Because guess what they do with the money? They use that money then to build the tabernacle. Great little teachings here on money. First off, number one, it's not yours. It's the Lord's. It's not yours. You may have worked for it. That paycheck may be made out to you, but ultimately it's not yours. Number two, the purpose of the money, anytime we are blessed with finances, the purpose of it is to say, Lord, how can we use this for you? 
Yes, I have bills to take care of. Yes, I have financial responsibilities. But ultimately, Lord, how can this be used for you to further the kingdom, to further the gospel? That's the purpose of it. So often we look at money as ours. So when the Lord comes and says, hey... How about you bless the work that I am doing in this world and by you giving that money to the church, by you tithing and being a part of it, and we become possessive. See, the way I look at it, the Lord says, James, invest 10% into the kingdom. I'm going to let you keep 90. I think that's a pretty good deal for me. And that's the way I've always kind of looked at it. And I can give you testimony after testimony of by the Lord doing that. I should say by us doing that, the Lord has honored it and blessed us. That's the only thing in the Bible God says, test me on. The only thing, and I tell you this, if you're in a tight financial spot and someone comes up to you and starts talking about tithing, I can't even pay my electric bill and you're talking about tithing, trust God in it. Just, just, just put him to the test. The only thing in the Bible, he says, put me in the test on and see what happens. It's amazing what the Lord can do with that. And also it's kind of neat when this concept of money, once again, this money that they take, I don't know what they thought. Do they think they were wealthy? Or did they know they were going to go all give it back here in just a short bit for the tabernacle? I don't know. But it's amazing how possessive we get with money. I'm just going to share the story with you real quick. My oldest son, Elias, just had a birthday. And uh, he got a uh, check in the mail for his birthday, and he got $50. So he was trying to decide what he wanted to do with it. And he was going through all these different ideas. And Elias always has these ideas, always has ideas. My newest thing now with Elias is this. Anytime he comes up to me with an idea, I say, talk to me in a week. Pray about it for a week, then come talk to me. So he had been going through ideas. He finally decided he was going to give this idea of giving the money to Gospel for Asia. All righty. I don't know who raised that great kid, but he wants to give the money to Gospel for Asia. Dawn and I are just blessed. The rule's always been whatever the boys want to give to Gospel for Asia, we will double. That's what the rule's always been. So he wants to give the money to Gospel for Asia. Amen. We're sitting there at the table talking at supper. What can you get for 100 bucks? And it's just a, a fun time. So we go out and ride our bikes that evening. He comes up to me on the road as we're riding bikes. He goes, Dad, you've always said that whatever I give to the Lord, he will honor and take care of that, won't he? I said, Amen. This is a great example of whatever you give to the Lord, he will always honor that and take care of you financially. So if I give him 50 bucks, so he'll like give me more back, right? (laughs) Now I saw his heart. I said, No. The Bible says God will be a debtor to no man. So I said, you never give to get, I call him Pookie. You never give to get Pookie. Your heart has to be pure on it. You never, you can't do that. Well, now he didn't want to give the gospel for Asia, and I think he wants to buy parakeets. That's the next thing. And so I said, talk to me in a week, buddy. Talk to me in a week. My point, though, is I think sometimes that's our, our focus on finances. Oh, I'll give to you, Lord, because I know you're going to give it back, and it's going to be worthwhile. And we treat God as some type of investment bank. That's not the way it is. Lord, you have so moved in my life. You are just God. I want to invest in the kingdom. I want to see the kingdom furthered. Here, Lord, take this. Take this as a free will offering because I am not forced to do this. I choose to do this. Paul said, do not do it begrudgingly. Take it. So here, the Israelites are getting all this gold and silver, but they're also going to all give it back to the Lord. And he's going to use that for the tabernacle. It's a pretty cool thing. So anyway... Real quick point there. Um, Verse 4, Then Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go out into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the female servant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the animals. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. But against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, 
Basically, will a dog even bark against man or beast that you may know the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and the Israels? Now, God could have started out with this. That wouldn't be much grace. Grace was, I'm going to change water to blood. Grace was, I'll give you some frogs. Then I'll give you some lice. Now we're going to do some boils. Okay, now we're getting to destruction. We're going to do hail. Now we're going to do this, the locust, darkness. He, he saved this one to last. And I firmly believe he saved this one to last because this is an awful one. This is an awful one. We have said so many times in this study, Ezekiel 33, God has no joy in the death of the wicked. None. I do not want you to envision God sitting up in heaven excited about taking the firstborn. There's no way that he was excited about this in any way whatsoever. Why the firstborn? Because the Egyptian culture, that idea of the firstborn, especially the firstborn of Pharaoh, would be the descendant of a god. And that firstborn would be the next Pharaoh, would be the next god. And ultimately, Israel is God's firstborn, if you will. And so Egypt, you know, they messed with God's firstborn. God now is doing this. But just please remember, ten plagues to get to this point. That's grace and mercy. I've noticed when I've talked to people, and they feel like the Lord is too tough on them. If you really stop and analyze their spiritual walk in life, God has given them little things to get their attention before he got to the big things. Because that's God's way of trying to do it. So, verse 8, And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that I will go out. Then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh, and the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go out of his land. Now this sets us up for what the Passover is. Passover is just vital. It is just vital to understand what the Passover is. Because the Passover bridges Old Testament and New Testament. It bridges this idea of the church and Judaism. It's this wonderful picture. And if you didn't have Christ and you would read what the Passover is, it would make no sense. None. If you've ever been to a Passover meal, we had a Passover meal you know, a couple times out here at church in the history of it. And we did a Passover meal last year with the boys. We tried to explain to them how this represents Jesus. Because if you don't, you're eating all these strange foods, doing all these strange things. Why in the world would we do this? So we have this picture here in Exodus 12. But what we're going to do over the next couple weeks, for every point they make in Exodus 12, let's find the New Testament verse that correlates to it to fully understand why. God is doing this. So let's jump right into it. Verse 1, Exodus 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons. According to each man's need, you shall make you count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish, and male the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. Can you go to the first slide there, Dustin? These are the references I want to put up here just to kind of talk about this, and we'll go through it. The first one. This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. If you look at a Jewish calendar, they kind of have two New Year's. They have one in the fall, which is kind of their civil calendar, their regular calendar, which is their new year. And then they have one here in the spring, 
which is almost a religious beginning. God is saying, now just think about this. This event, this Passover is so big, we're going to reset the whole calendar. That's how big of a deal this is. New. Well, it reminds me of 2 Corinthians 5.17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Your walk with Jesus is a brand new, fresh start. Just like the Passover was a complete fresh start for Israel. They've been enslaved for hundreds of years. They're now getting a fresh start. They're coming out of slavery. This is us. The Bible makes it clear that we're in bondage to sin. It's like we're enslaved to sin. And so just as the Passover was the beginning of Israel's new life and freedom, we're a new creation in Christ, and we're now taken out of the slavery of sin And now we are new and free in Jesus. So this is their beginning. This is our beginning. Now the next one, a lamb for a household, Exodus 12, 3. Well, that's Jesus. The next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins, the sin of the world. The Lamb is Christ. Now remember, if you don't have the New Testament, you don't really get this. This is why it's so important to compare this. It's this idea of a lamb. And think about what this lamb is doing. This lamb is taking care of the sin of a household. And this has been God's progression from the beginning. Think back to Abel. Abel was doing one man, one lamb. Then you get here to the Passover, and it's one family to one lamb. Here in the law, you have one nation to one animal sacrifice, and eventually it's Jesus to one lamb for the whole sins of the world. You see how God is building up. It was one to one one to a family, one to a nation, not one to the world. That's Jesus. So Jesus is the lamb that is the sacrifice for the entire household. And obviously this last one here, your lamb shall be without blemish, First Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Perfect, sinless, holy. That's Jesus. This idea of the perfect, sinless sacrifice. It had to be Jesus. I can get on the cross and die for your sins, and it won't do anything. Because I'm a sinful man trying to pay for someone else's sin. I'm a man in debt that's trying to pay off someone else's debt. Jesus was sinless. He was the man that owed nobody anything, so therefore he could pay for my sin and pay for my debt. That's why it has to be Christ and Christ alone. Without spot, without blemish, perfect. And that's the beautiful picture of that, without spot, without blemish. Now, just a couple little quick points in here as we go through this. This starts on the 10th of the month. Now, verse 4, if the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of the persons, according to each man's need, you shall make your count for the lamb. Tradition says one lamb for about 10 people. So just kind of an idea there, what they were kind of considering was too small. And what you see here is this idea of this happening in-house. This was something that was supposed to be a family unit doing this together. A family really focusing on the Lord. Men out there with wives, with wife and kids. Not wives, that's another teaching for another day. But men out there with a wife and kids at home or what have you. Look at that. These men were taking the spiritual leadership of their home and training this. We're going to get into some verses here. How This is supposed to be something that you teach your children to and you train them with this. Why are we doing this? Why are we doing this, Dad? Why was this lamb represent? Well, let me tell you about what's going on here. 
And you see that spiritual leadership starting in the home and the importance of that. Can you go to the next slide real quick, Dustin? Now, on the 10th of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. If you jump ahead to verse 6, you keep it until the 14th day of the same month. So that means you have this lamb for four days. Now, if you've ever heard me teach on the Passover before, you know where I'm going with this. So you get this lamb on the 10th, and you keep it to the 14th. So you keep it for four days. I grew up on a farm. We grew up having lambs. I honestly believe there's no cuter animal in God's existence than a lamb. Baby lambs are about the cutest thing you've ever seen. And we would have baby lambs that were going to have to be bottle fed. So we'd have to bring them in. And I have memories as a kid going into the bathroom and seeing in our tub a baby lamb. The mom wouldn't take care of it. So you have this baby lamb that you're feeding with a bottle. And lambs have the cutest little sound. They're fuzzy. They're soft. They're adorable. I, I could go on and on. I really believe they're about the cutest thing that God has ever created. So, you you know where I'm going with this. So, Dad brings home a lamb on the 10th. What are those kids going to do? They are going to fall in love with that lamb. If I would bring home a baby lamb to my boys, and they didn't know what Passover was, we first have an argument on what we're going to name the lamb. We're going to have an argument on who gets to feed the lamb. I know what my boys would say, who gets to sleep with the lamb? You're not going to sleep with the lamb, boys. The boys, the lamb is going to be in the garage, and we're going to put a pin up. Dad, can we sleep in the garage by the lamb? They would fall in love with the lamb. And then guess what dad's going to do four days later? He's going to slit the lamb's throat. See, this is Jesus. He walked on this earth for 33 years. We fall in love with who Jesus is, and then Jesus dies. See, why else are they watching it for four days? This lamb is supposed to be perfect. So for four days, you're also analyzing this lamb. Are there any spots I didn't see the first time? Are there any blemishes? Is this lamb getting sickly? You're watching this lamb for mistakes. Jesus walked on this world for 33 years with everybody watching him. And the Bible says he was without sin. Hebrews 4.15, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Do you ever think about the human side of Jesus? I used to struggle with that. I got the whole part, he's God. Okay, he's God. But he was a human. He was a man. He got hungry. He got tired. I was just reading a, a devotional about when Jesus was asleep at the boat and the storm was coming and the disciples thought they were all going to die. So they went and woke up Jesus. And I've taught that before. And I always used to teach that He's Jesus. The boat's not going to sink. If the boat sinks with Jesus in it, there's some deep problems. So as long as you're in the same boat as Jesus, you're never going to sink. Okay, and I think that's a good teaching point. But the, I read this commentary on it, and the one guy said, why was Jesus asleep in the boat? Well, because he's God. He doesn't have anything to worry about. He said, no, go back and look. Read the passages before it. Jesus was completely and utterly exhausted from ministry. Have you not ever had a day where you were just so tired? This happened to me the other day. We just had a long day at church, and I was just exhausted. And so all the boys were in bed, and I'm sitting on the couch. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to sit here for a little bit. I'm going to watch this for a little bit. I don't know what happened. Next thing I know, Dawn is shutting off TV and lights, etc. I just fell asleep. I think it's one of those things where Jesus got in the boat. He was just exhausted. He was a man but yet without sin. So this lamb, the kids fall in love with, but the lamb dies. 
We love Jesus, but the lamb dies. This lamb was watched for four days to make sure there's no sin, no blemish. Just like Jesus for 33 years walked on this earth without sin or blemish. And it's a great picture of who Christ is and what this means and what this represents. Let's take a quick stop here. Anybody got any quick questions, comments about anything here about the Passover? Ryan. Well, I believe later on, and I'll have to double check this, I think it kind of talks about how um, uh, it becomes that more, where it says, struck all the firstborn, firstborn of the captive. Well, I'll have to find the verse to you and get back to you on that there. But that reference where it's talking about the servant, are you talking about the female servant there in verse, verse 5, where the firstborn of the female servant who's behind the handmill? I think that what that is trying to show there is this idea that it's not just to the royalty of Egypt as well. It's affecting anybody in Egypt as well, from the high to the low. So, yeah, surely. Yeah. What verse is that, Shirley? Of chapter, chapter 11. Okay. What translation? Um, NIV. NIV. Okay. I knew there was a passage in there somewhere about that. Like I said, I believe what's just saying there in verse 5, how it's going to affect everybody in Egypt. Everybody. Anybody else have any other quick questions here? Marcus. Yeah. Yeah. You have to remember sometimes when the things are given here in the Bible, it's not necessarily in sequential order, it's more in subject order. So, really, what chapter 11 is, is a bit of a parenthesis, if you will, in the story. I firmly believe that when you look at chapter 11, that conversation probably happened when it was going on there after chapter 10. Because really what chapter 11 is, it's really an introduction out of chapter 12. What you have here through the first 10 chapters of Exodus, it's more of here's the plagues. Chapter 11 starts changing the book completely. So I agree with you. If you would just read the end of 29, I will never see your face again. And then you jump ahead to verse 8, then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. That seems to all go together. And chapter 11 is more of a subject order rather than a, um, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, chronological order. A little bit like the book of Revelation. Sometimes it kind of jumps around a little bit. Anybody else have anything? Rose. Would there be any significance that it would be a firstborn son, so that would connect It could be. Um, you know, I think the main significance is sometimes the Lord is referred to Israel as his, as his firstborn. And so, therefore, since Egypt mistreated his firstborn, I think that's more of a connection there. That's a good point, though, about Jesus. Yeah, surely. Yeah, I, I believe children go to heaven. And I can give you some Old Testament verses to back that up. Um, if you look at David, when David lost his one-year-old son, David said, he cannot come back to me, but I can go to him. David believed that his son was, would be in what we would call heaven. It wasn't that called that in the Old Testament. Uh, the other one would be the book of Jonah, where uh, God told Jonah, should I not have mercy on all these people that cannot tell their right hand from their left hand? 
And what God was telling Jonah is, since these people do not have the mental capacity to understand who I am, therefore I have grace on them. There's a theological term that we use called the age of accountability. That if somebody is not old enough or does not have the mental capacity to fully grasp and understand who Jesus is and what it means and represents, that we believe the Bible teaches that they do not go to hell. That's not a loving God. That if a child does die, they have automatic entrance into heaven. Yeah. Well, yeah. What you're saying is a great point. The problem is, and I don't disagree with you, but the problem is it's hard for the world to grasp that. You know, we as Christians, when we lose a loved one and we know that that loved one is saved, Psalm 116 says, Precious in the eyes of God is the death of one of his saints. We believe that person is home to heaven, absent from the body, present with the Lord. From the world's perspective, they don't see that. You know, if they see a person die before an age that they thought they had a long life, God is unfair, how can the Lord do that, etc. Whereas believers, we have a different understanding, a different perspective. Paul wrote that we do not mourn as those who have no hope. So therefore, when a young child dies, we do not see that. We hope we do not see that. It's still awfully sorrowful. You guys know that. But hopefully we can see past that to say that this young child now is home in heaven. This young child now is precious in the eyes of the Lord. So surely you bring up a great point. The world does not have that spiritual uh, veil lifted yet to see that and grasp that. But we as believers look at it from a different perspective, which really helps. And it really gives us hope in the time. I mean, seriously, we're on this world. The Bible says for about 70 years. For some reason, we live like we're going to, we live like we're going to live here forever. This is such a drop in the bucket in all of eternity. Can I remember that, Tina? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're, they're walking in a spiritual blindness. It's difficult because when we deal with that phrase, that idea of spiritual blindness, you know, I've done a lot of counseling out here, and when somebody comes in and they are not saved and they are wondering why, okay, I always tell people I can't answer why questions, but I can tell you who, and the answer is Jesus. But if they're not willing to open their eyes to Christ, they're never going to find peace. They never will. And how often do you know a loved one, a family member, a co-worker, etc., who has gone through something tragic, if they don't know Jesus, they will not find the peace they need to get through that. They won't. And so therefore, they sit there trying to figure out why and how. And it's not why and how, it's who. It's Jesus. And that's why it's so important for us when someone's going through a difficult time to make sure that we're proclaiming who Jesus is. You can't answer the why questions, people. You can't answer, how could God do that? You can say, though, I know this. God is good and does good, and I know this, that Jesus loves you. And those are the ones that we can work on and go from there. Anybody else have anything before we go on? All righty. Let's... Can you go to the next one real quick, Dustin? Yeah, I want to do this one real quick. 
I want to do this one real quick, and then we'll be done. We're going to have to find some place to stop. Verse 7, And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and on the lentil of the houses where they eat it. And they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread and with bitter herbs. They shall eat it. We'll have to stop with that one. I want to just talk about this blood. What they're basically saying is if you look at a doorpost here, they put blood on one side, they put blood on the other side. Don't go near a speaker. And they put blood up top. So that's what they're kind of saying there. But the, the key thing, though, is found a little bit later in verse 22, is where they do this with hyssop. And you shall take a bunch of hyssop, dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and strike the lentil in the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out of the door of this house until morning. That hyssop is, is a wonderful symbolism in the Bible. And if you were with us when we did our Wednesday evening study where we talked about Excellent Wednesday, the death of Jesus on the cross, we mentioned this idea of hyssop. Hyssop in the Bible is usually connected with this idea of uh, sin and forgiveness and being made clean. Psalm 51.7, that great psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba, or I should say was found out, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. That hyssop is a plant that they could use, a sturdy plant with a long... Um, Stem, Jesus on the cross in John 19, 29, they offered him what? Hyssop, a sponge with sour wine with a hyssop branch. And if you've ever studied out Numbers 19, if you want a fun study, I tell you, I'm excited about this one. Study out the red heifer. When I first heard about the red heifer, I thought someone was telling me a joke, that there's a red heifer in the Bible. Go to Numbers 19. If you want something fun to do tonight, learn about the red heifer. Very quickly put, as they are wandering in the wilderness, and there's hundreds of thousands, there's millions of people here. And they have to wander for 40 years until they all die. Okay, people are dying all the time. Well, the Jews can't be around death. That would be considered unclean. So God set up this plan in Numbers 19 where they used a red heifer to have part of the cleansing process whenever you're around a dead body. And guess what's in the ashes of the red heifer? Hyssop plants. So it's important that this blood is dipped with hyssop because hyssop in the Bible represents forgiveness. You see that in Psalm 51. In John 19, you see it at the cross of Christ. And then in Numbers 19, you see it, hyssop making you clean from death. See, that's the beauty of the symbolism that we get a chance to see in the New Testament that we don't see in the Old Testament. So anytime you're reading through the Bible and you see hyssop, think of that, cleanliness, forgiveness, Cleansing from death. And this idea of the blood on the left side, on the red side, and up top. You know, I've heard some pastors say before, think about that. If you have blood to the right and blood to the left and blood up top, that kind of looks like a cross. No blood was underneath. The blood was there on the sides and up top. And we'll have to get into it next week about this idea of do not go out of the house until morning. You were safe. You're safe where? In the blood of Jesus. That's why in John 15, Jesus says, abide in me. Remain in me. I, I tell you, the safest place you could ever be in this world is in God's will. That's the safest place. You could be in the middle of the most destructive storm ever, the most violent area ever, but if you're in God's will, you're in the safe spot. We judge safety on an outside appearance when really safety is in God's will. So some of you may come in tonight with fear, worry, and anxiety. As long as you are in God's will, and as long as you're in the house covered in the blood of Jesus, you're right where you're supposed to be. Don't leave the house. How often do we, in fear, worry, and anxiety, leave the house? 
I got to do something. This isn't working. Something's got to change. I got stay in the house. We're going to get out of this here in a little bit. But, you know, if they stayed in the house, they were okay. And if the Egyptians did it, they were okay. Got to stay in the house. So, hyssop, a great symbolism there once again of Christ on the cross, ashes the red heifer, and also forgiveness there and uh, cleanliness there from sin. So we'll have to stop there. It's kind of an awkward place to stop, but we only have so much time here on a Wednesday night. Anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything before we close up? Yes, Samuel. Does that include the parents too, if they were that, if they were the firstborn? Well, that's a tough one to answer. Some people think it does. Some people think it doesn't. How's that for an answer? And the reason why is because in the references of where they're talking about, they're talking about the idea mostly of children there. And the subject comes up of where does God draw the line of firstborn? Because Pharaoh himself probably would have been a firstborn. And Pharaoh himself survived. So, but some people have said, well, firstborn means firstborn, no matter of the age. So, but like I said, some other people believe when they look at the references of it, it seems to be talking more about the mothers crying, etc., that it's dealing more with the idea of the children there. So it's one of those where we could kind of go both ways on it, but when you kind of look at the scriptures of what's talking about, most of the references that he's talking about seems to be this idea of the children and with Pharaoh there. But some people believe a little bit differently when they come to that. Anybody else have anything here before we go on? All right, let's pray, and we'll let you guys go then. Uh, Heavenly Fathers, we just come to you. Lord, help us to remember what you mean and what you represent. Lord, it's all you. Everything we read, it's all you. You said the whole book is written about me. Help us to see that and understand that. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we praise you. And Lord, as we just look at this, we know that we're saved by the blood. That's what it comes down to. We're saved by the blood. And it's the blood of Jesus, that lamb that saves us. And as we get ready to study this more over the next couple weeks, give us that wisdom, give us that guidance and direction, and help us to remember that's all that matters as we tell people it's all about the blood, and we want to stay safe in that area. And we lift this up in your name. Amen. All righty, we'll let you guys go. Anybody that wants to have anything to pray about, please feel free to come on up. We'll pray up here for a while over some things. But if you've got to get going, have a blessed evening and good night.